I've entitled this morning's message, which is somewhat of an introduction to the, the book of Titus, as we're covering four verses, really. Seven examples of the grit and grace in Paul's greeting to Titus. The book itself, written uh, early in the inception of the New Testament church, deals with Paul writing to a man named Titus, who was one of his most reliable helpers. Uh, he deals largely with the conditions, Paul does, of the churches in the island of Crete. And although Titus is not mentioned in the book of Acts, Titus was uh, very clearly a strong helper to Paul in his ministry. He was prominent all through the epistles, and we find in various uh, letters that Paul writes that he, Titus, had served as someone responsible uh, for giving discretion and observation in people's lives. He was Paul's emissary to the church at Corinth. He was put in charge of the collection for the poor that Paul wanted to send to Jerusalem. He was placed as overseer to the churches in Crete, as I mentioned, and that the residents there in the island of Crete were of notable low character. So Titus wasn't sent to sent, rather, to Easy Street. He was given a very uh, formidable task. And later, Paul sends Titus as far as what's in the scripture called Dalmatia, which would be common-day Yugoslavia. The whole letter actually belongs alongside what we would call the, um, the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And uh, Pastor Austin does such a wonderful job on 1 and 2 Timothy. It's kind of his go-to when he steps in and fills in for me, and he has a little bit more to cover in 2 Timothy. I really had a strong prompting to leave those books to him, for he does such a, a great job in teaching those books and jump from 2 Thessalonians over to Titus this morning and we'll move forward. And what we find that as a book that belongs alongside of the pastoral epistles, that Paul in this letter to Titus also addresses the qualifications for elders uh, he stresses sound doctrine. He states the ethical obligations of all Christians, older men, older women, younger men, and younger women. And he warns against false teaching throughout the course of the book. But here in these first four verses, uh, in his opening greeting. With an amazing depth of understanding of the Lord Jesus himself and the fatherhood of God, the Apostle Paul deals with what I call seven examples of grit and grace uh, 
in the life of every Christian, whether you are an elder, whether you are a lay person, whether you are a man, woman, boy, girl, young or old, every Christian will have need of grit in certain areas and, of course, the need of God's grace. And we want to look at those examples in these verses this morning and seek to apply them to our lives. So let's take a look at the first three, back up to verse 1. And we find Paul saying that he is, Paul, a bondservant of God. And I stop us there right on that first uh, definition that Paul gives to himself, a bondservant of God, and I begin with grit. Because it will take grit in the life of a Christian to be a bondservant of God. It forces the question, what is a bondservant of God? The clinical definition would be a willing servant or a willing slave, if you will. Now, careful, uh, BLM and the woke proponents of today may have real trouble with the phrase willing slave. And perhaps we would get taken off of our YouTube channel. Those of you who are watching at home, we welcome you into uh, this morning's study. But better yet, maybe we would stay on the channel and others would get a clear definition of the biblical term of a willing slave because it is something clearly that runs from Genesis through uh, Revelation and is beautifully described really in what I would call the life of young Samuel. If you'd like to turn there with me, Turn backwards in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Keep your finger in the book of Titus and turn backwards to 1 Samuel chapter 3. And when we get there, we find that there was this young lad named Samuel who was the son of a woman named Hannah. Many of you know the account Hannah was married to Elkanah and her womb was barren. She could not bear children. And that may not seem as big of a deal to you and I today, but it is difficult for us to fathom the intensity with which bearing children in this culture biblically and in this day meant. It, it was to carry on the entire family. And so to not be able to bear a child to your husband was huge. And uh, Hannah wept bitterly over the fact that she could not. Have you ever wept bitterly over something? And in her bitter weeping, she decided, I will appeal to the one that I can only appeal to, which is God. And in that bitterness, she appealed to God and said, God, if you will grant me a child, I will give him to you. In other words, you give him to me, I'll give him back to you, and he will be yours to serve you all the days of his life. 
God heard her prayer, granted her request. We have a few important phrases in chapter 3 that in those days, verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare. We see that there was a man overseeing this what we would call temple area where Samuel had been sent. Remember, his mother said, if you give me a child, I'll give him to you. And as the lad grew, he was sent to be cared for by one of the the Hebrew priests, Eli. And Eli was corrupt. And yet here was young Samuel under his care. And we find in verse 2 that It came to pass that while Eli was laying down in the place and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle uh, of the Lord where the ark of God was and while Samuel was lying down that the Lord called Samuel. You see, there's, there's an applicable situation here. The lamp of God going out in the temple is... Clearly, the presence of God leaving the place in which God said he would reside. And one of the reasons that that was happening is because the overseer in that temple had become corrupt. And if you think the church today, moving way forward, that every church in in America, has the presence of God upon it, you might want to think again. I heard someone recently say that America has forgotten God, so God has forgotten America. And you sit here this morning, I am here this morning, come passionately to to seek the Lord and follow after his ways, but it's not so in in what we would call the general, necessarily, the general church in our country. And so the lamp is going out. The overseer has become corrupt. And God's eye says, Samuel. And what happens is God calls Samuel. He calls to him. And if you read through this chapter in your own reading, you'll find that Samuel thought it was Eli calling him. So he gets up and he goes to Eli and he said, did you call me? And he says, no, I didn't call you. Go back and lay down. So Samuel goes lay down. God calls him again, Samuel, and he gets up, he goes back to Eli. Did you call me? He says, no, I didn't call you. Third time he gets up and, and he comes to Eli, and Eli, even though he's corrupt, he begins to understand that the Lord is probably calling this young man. He tells Samuel, go back and lay down, and if you hear this voice again, answer the Lord and say, verse 9, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and it shall be that if he calls you, that you must say, speak, Lord, for your, what's the word? Servant hears. And as the account goes on, that's what Samuel did. And if you know anything about Samuel, he was raised up to be a great prophet in his day. And the word servant there, though Hebraic, is the same meaning of servant that Paul is talking about, about being a bond servant. Samuel, in that word servant, your servant hears, 
What Samuel was telling God is, is I am here, I am willing, here is my life, it is no longer my own, my life is yours, my ears are open to what you might say to me, so that when you speak, I will obey. Wow. The bondservant of God. The concept began way back in Deuteronomy chapter 15 that the the Hebrews had a principle that if uh, a Hebrew was in debt, that he could go to his, uh, the one he was in debt to, the other Hebrew, and he could serve that person for seven years. And then on the seventh year, that employer had the ability to say now that your debt is, is, done and and he could let that servant go and if that servant over the course of the seven years serving his master had come to find so much joy being so well cared for a place to sleep a place to eat roof over his head and just a, a kind master that that wasn't brutal or or over demanding but required of him that which that servant could give at the end of that seven years that servant would go to his master and he would say no I don't want to be free I am your willing slave for the rest of my life and that master would take that servant out to the doorpost of his house and he would set that servant there and he would take his ear and he would take an awl and he would Boom! Drive a hole right through that servant's ear. It's the original piercing. (laughs) And that servant would wear that earring as a significant statement. I am the willing slave of my master. Are you wearing Jesus' earring this morning? Are you his bondservant? Paul, a bondservant of God. It will take grit. It's not easy street. But there's no greater joy For the one who has said to Christ, I'm yours. Moving on this morning, if you want to turn back to Titus, we find that we deal next with grace. Grit and grace. Paul says further, after saying a a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who is sent out, he says, according to the faith of God's elect. Grace is what it takes to be one of God's elect. And we consider the grace factor in uh, this greeting and in the life of Christians. It requires grace to be one of God's elect. And the principle or biblical fact of election uh, is rich through the New Testament. 
the principle and the biblical fact of predestination is rich through the New Testament as well. We know, according to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he said, for whom God did predestine. But we also know that the letter speaks of God's election. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Thinking that maybe the elect is only Israel or Hebrews, Romans eleven seven says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it. And the rest were blinded. So Romans eleven seven 7 is clear indication that the elect is not just Israel, but it is those who believe, encompassing all. Colossians 3, 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. We're reminded in the book of Ephesians that it is for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The election of God includes and must begin with the grace of God. And Paul recognized that. That though the grit of being a bondservant requires one to dig deep down and be obedient to those things that God says, it starts and remains that grace is imperative. The unmerited favor of God, grace, charis. And Paul includes this grace in his greeting. Are you a recipient of the grace of God this morning? Have you sought to earn his favor? Do you at times think, oh, I'll be a better Christian? It's, it's impossible. There's, there should be no such phrase in the mouth of someone who has said to Christ, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you were crucified on the cross, that you died for the penalty of my sin, you were buried and rose the third day to conquer death, hell, and the grave. I place my faith in you. Will you forgive me of my sin and come and take over in my life? Bingo, poop. I mean, there's no such phrase as, as being, I'm going to be a better Christian. You are a Christian by reason of your faith in Christ. And that faith comes to you, that salvation comes to you by grace, not by merit. A third thing that Paul gives us here in examples of grit and grace is grit again as we come here still in verse 1 when he talks about the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. The acknowledgement of truth. And I found it interesting this morning that uh, Daniel Webster's dictionary tells us the definition of truth. I think we may have a little bit of it up there. Uh, 
the body of real things, events, and facts. I'm going to add to that verbally this morning. He goes on to say the state of being the case or fact. Often it is capitalized truth, transcendent, fundamental, or spiritual reality, the body of truth statements and propositions, sincerity and action, character and utterance. In other words, truth. And the object of Paul's point is that his ministry was to secure a proper acknowledgement of truth among people, among men and women. And he had, was reminding Titus of that as he's sending Titus to the island of Crete, that he, they are both in their role to acknowledge the acknowledgement of truth, which accords with godliness. And do you know that it will take grit today to remain one who acknowledges the truth. There is so much. You've heard it on national television. You've read it in the newspapers. You've heard it on various variety radio. There's misinformation, disinformation, and all kinds of uh, acronyms that they want to put in front of those words. When they all, it, whether it's misinformation or disinformation, whatever kind of information it is, if it's not the truth, it's a lie. And yet Paul says, the grit of being a bondservant, the grace of coming to saving faith, the grit of always being willing to acknowledge the truth which will accord to godliness. He was not called to reinforce scientific truth, historic truth, political truth, social truth. He was called to stand firm and not move from the spiritual truth of the word of God. And I love this one. So Webster has a de definition of truth, the body of real things, events, and facts. God has a definition of truth as well. You find it in, did I say 1 Titus? It should be, oops, sorry, that's 1 Timothy, not 1 Titus. It's uh, my fault on the uh, email, Chris. It's 1 Timothy 2.5. You can read it with me. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's the truth. And you can't get to God any other way. There's no other mediator. There's no other person who mediates man's position, God's position, and how to connect human beings, mankind, everyone to God one way and that's the man, Christ Jesus, who as the son of man, fully God yet fully man, took upon him the penalty of, of original sin and all sin to follow, nailed it once and for all on the Christ cross, shed his blood so that faith in that blood accounts to righteousness for the one who believes. Will you be willing in this day and age to continue to acknowledge that truth? Yes. 
There are not many ways to God. Not all religions are the same. Not every faith will wind you up in heaven. The grit of being a bondservant, the grace of the elect of God, the grit of acknowledging the truth. A fourth example Paul gives us, gives us grace again. Now in verse 2, he says, in the hope of eternal life. And we find that there is hope in the promise of eternal life. And that that hope begins with the grace that God gives to the one who will believe. You're probably well aware this morning, maybe you who are watching at home, that the soul is eternal. Your soul, my soul, every human being's soul is eternal. What do I mean by that? I mean that simply when you were conceived in your mother's womb and that's how you got here, whatever you believe, the fact that you're here, you were conceived in your mother's womb, you were grown in that womb, you were brought through the birth canal. In the old days, that doctor used to slap that baby on the behind. They don't do that anymore. They do different things. Take the fluids out of the nose and the lung area. And, it's such a beautiful sound when that baby cries, isn't it? Life. It's new life. And that child, that infant, begins to grow and grow and grow. Every soul is eternal. It will spend he, she, not it. He or she will spend eternity somewhere. Ecclesiastes 3.11 he has made everything beautiful in its time and he has put eternity in their hearts. Eternity exists. Isaiah 57, 15, Thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Eternity is real. Every soul will spend an eternity somewhere. The question is where? Jesus talked about an eternal hell, an eternal death. Luke 12, 4, he said to his disciples, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who is who after has killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, fear him. Jesus affirms that there is, there is a hell, there is an eternity called hell, which means apart from the presence of God. We don't often talk about hell much here, or uh, sin. I don't mean we don't talk about it, but sometimes the church doesn't talk much about hell and sin, and the cross, and the blood. 
Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 46? He said, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. So there is an eternity first. Second, one of those eternities is hell, and it is an eternal condition apart from the presence of God. But there is also eternal life which Paul talks about here and reinforces grace that gives us hope, in hope, verse 2, of eternal life. 1 John 2.24, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he has promised us, Eternal life. That's what scared the devil and H-E-L-L out of me. 15 years old at Hume Lake Camp, hearing the word of God all week long, the final night, campfire, amphitheater, Ken Poor preaching about a real heaven and a real hell and a real decision to be made of where I wanted to spend it. Have you made that decision this morning? Perhaps you're watching at home and you haven't made that decision. Today is the day. Don't leave this place without coming to terms with where you want to spend eternity. Because the offer of eternal life has been given in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it begins with God's grace. Paul goes on to tell us another thing that will require grit. And he says that God who promised eternal life from before time began, notice there in verse 2, that God who cannot lie. God cannot lie. Now this is going to require grit on the part of every Christian. Numbers 23, 19 tells us God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said or will he not do? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? The author of Hebrews tells us that God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. Those two immutable things are the trust in the infallible word of God and our trust in the resurrected Son of God. And in today's economy, in today's society, in today's culture, beloved, it's going to take grit to stand up to those who would say, you, you think the Bible is true? Can you prove that to me? to stand up to those who would question the accuracy of Scripture, the inerrancy of its worth. 
to those who would stand up and say, no, 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 you can't be so narrow-minded as that God, if God is, is love, why does he allow, you've heard that question, right? Why does he allow such suffering and death and pain? When the answer is, God didn't begin with suffering, death, and pain. God began with uh, a perfect environment which, in which he set mankind, his first man and woman, Adam and Eve, but he gave them free will. He gave them the ability to choose. And in that free will, he said, you know, you can have everything you want in this garden. But I, there's one thing that I ask you not to do, and that's to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Why? Because he didn't want mankind to necessarily know good and evil. He just wanted mankind to stay in unbroken fellowship with him. His beloved creation. And in that free will... There was a choice to not believe what God had said. The enemy comes in and says, ah, God's not really telling you the truth. It's this or it's that or it's the other. No, it will take grit to stand for the truth that God does not lie. Two more this morning. Another thing that will take grit as we kind of wind down here in verse 3. Paul says that God has in due time manifested his word through preaching. And so Paul acknowledging to Titus the fact that this love letter that we have in the word of God and, and in Paul's day, you know, the scrolls were just building. They, they didn't have this entire Bible as Paul was writing this letter. They had the testimony of the disciples. They had one, maybe two of the gospels. Other letters were being written. And so Paul makes this Huge statement that, that now what God wants to do is write a new letter, a new covenant, establish a new way in which mankind will come to know the true and the living God and walk with the true and the living God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, because of his sacrifice upon the cross of Calvary. And that God has chosen his word to now send that message and preachers to now carry that word to deliver that truth. Romans 10.14 says, How then shall they call upon him uh, whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? I take this role of mine uh, very seriously, and yet I'm reminded daily how unimportant I am. 
The day I stop speaking the truth of the word of God is the day that God can take me out and put someone else there. And I admonish you this morning to never just take my word for things. If you do, you'll be short-sighted. Be a Berean. Open your Bibles. Study them to see if the things that I am saying are true. But God has ordained that his word is to be heralded. The word preach means to be heralded. And that can be done from a pulpit on a Sunday morning. That can be done uh, in a circle on Wednesday nights. Please come join us on Wednesday nights. There's a plug for our Wednesday night Bible study. It's more like a home fellowship. Please come. Um, That can be done in the comfort and confidence of your living room. It can be done on a street corner. It can be done on the phone. It can be done. You can herald the word of God anywhere. And you would be fulfilling this that Paul is saying to Titus is the way the message now goes forward. But let me warn you that if you're going to do that, it's going to require grit. Because you will inevitably come into situations where what you're heralding is not Received well, accepted, or even uh, want to be heard. Lastly, this morning we come again to grace when Paul says that the preaching was committed to him according to the commandment of God our Savior. Okay, so we have an underscoring that God is the one who saves us. And according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, how does he save us? By grace, for by grace you have been saved. But notice as he goes down, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, look at the two words and the sentence. Our Savior. In verse 3, God is our Savior. In verse 4, Jesus is our Savior. Because they are one and the same, though different. Our triune God, who fully exists in the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, upon which the grace of God is not missed in any of that. Is it not God's grace that would cause the Holy Spirit of God to open the ear and the eye and the heart of the one who would be listening to the word of God to begin to want to receive the truth of God that it is God's grace that saves them? No merit, not earned. Completely the grace of God. You know, there is a time when Jesus will come for judgment. 
And we don't know when that time is as we look at the events in our world today. Man, it could be any day. As someone once said at the middle of the whole COVID global pandemic, that for a Christian, this should be either the most, well, for a Christian, this should be the most exciting time to live. Why? Because there's not a record where, again, where we've had an entire global fear, a global control, a global environment that that paves the way for one person to come in and solve that. Now, things are beginning to relax, but, you know, it starts to shift to the economy, the global economy, et cetera, et cetera. And there is a day in which Jesus will return for judgment. But when he came the first time and walked among us, he came with grace. As John's gospel tells us, for we did behold him full of grace and truth. And if anyone wants to know God today and wants to know God better, wants to know the Lord Jesus more intimately, it's grace. You and I can't, we don't earn a a deeper, more intimate relationship. It's God's grace. The Bible tells us it's the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. And how grateful I know many of you are, and I know that I am this morning, for God's kindness in my life and his grace. So I close with this. Are you a bond servant? It will take grit. Are you a part of God's elect? It took grace. Are you going to always acknowledge the truth that also will acquire grit? Do you have the hope of eternal life? If so, that's because of grace. If not this morning, call upon God's grace. Will you stand and say that God does not lie? That will require grit, for sure. Will you herald his word? That will require grit. But will you acknowledge that God and Jesus and the Spirit are one? And by his grace, you have been saved and decide to follow. I leave that question with you this morning for you to answer those questions and by his mercy may we answer them in a way that brings him great pleasure will you join me in a closing word of prayer Lord, this morning we are grateful for the freedom to gather, to open your word, 
to gaze upon it with our eyes, but more importantly, to hear it with our ears and the heart of our understanding. Knowing that even now there may be someone who has yet to know the hope of eternal life. If anyone is listening this morning that has yet to call upon Christ, even now in this intimate moment, you can do that. We ask that, Lord, for those of us that may already have known you, that you are whispering to us these truths of what it means to be your bond servant, a part of the elect, to stand for the truth, and to herald your word. Only by your grace, Lord. So we call again this morning for that grace to fall upon us. And we ask it in Jesus' name.